Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of the delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is truly, for this is whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with everything, every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Micah. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy and privilege to guide us now in a time of teaching. We are finishing up our series that we've been in for the last few weeks on the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, and we need God's help uh, and his power to help us understand what to do with a book like this. So would you join me in prayer together? Father, I thank you for that reminder that every breath we breathe is from you. From the beginning of creation up to the moment that we take our dying breath, it is your breath graciously given to us that animates us and brings us life, that promises to breathe new life into dry bones. And God, this morning as we get ready to hear your word, um, I pray that the breath that comes out of my lungs would not be the, the normal hot air that I like to spew around that it would be your spirit speaking words of life to my heart and to the hearts of those in this room. I pray that your spirit would also rest on us to be able to hear and understand and apply and encourage one another um, with the words that we hear. Pray this in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, you might have missed it in the middle of everything else that's been going on the last couple of years, but in 2021, we actually were witness to one of the great battles for the ages. This wasn't a battle that was fought with, with sword uh, or with lengthy debates of politician. This wasn't even one of our favorite battles, which is the sit behind my safe Facebook screen and type angry words battles. It wasn't any of that. No, this battle was a battle of pen and ink and wit. And of course, I'm talking about the great book blurb duel of 2021, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? No? Man, see, it's just a tragedy how many of these get lost uh, in history. Let me remind you uh, what happened. So it all started when the comedian Jack Handy, who is famous for his deep thoughts with Jack Handy, you might be familiar with Jack, he endorsed a book written by the satirist Jen Spira, uh, who, uh, who wrote a book called Big Time Stories. And Handy wrote a, a book blurb for, to endorse this book, and here's what the blurb said. It said, every once in a while, a new writer bursts onto the scene, which makes a disgusting mess. But other times, a hilarious writer like Jen Spira comes along with a fabulous collection of brilliantly funny dark stories. Now, that's a good blurb, right? It's, it's funny, it's to the point, and it does what a blurb is supposed to do. It makes me want to read her book. But unlike most blurbs that are written for books, this one did not just stop at the book jacket. In fact, Spira uh, responded with a blurb of her own about Handy's blurb, endorsing his blurb about her book to be read. Follow that? Here's what she said. 
She said, Jack Handy's blurb about my book is one of the best blurbs I've read in a long time. It has it all, a funny joke, a hearty endorsement, what's not to love? I mean, sure, he could have laid it on a little thicker, something like Jen Spire is a comedic godsend. Still, like a trusty old car, Jack's blurb gets the job done. This is one blurb you don't want to miss. From here, Handy and Spira took to the New Yorker to keep the zingers going in the only appropriate way, and that is a blurb duel, dueling blurbs. You can find all of it on the internet. There's so many of them, I, we do not have time. It would take all of our time together to read every single one of them. But things continued to escalate until eventually the duel came to a dramatic conclusion. Here's Handy. The stories in Jen Spire's new book are so amazingly funny, it makes you wonder who wrote them. <laughs> Next, frantic scrabbling. Next, ah, I'm being strangled by Jen Spira. Then, Jack Handy's latest blurb is simple, direct, and most important, accurate. I recommend it to anyone except the judge currently weighing the conditions of my bail. And then finally, I still like your book, Jack Handy's Epitaph. Now, what makes these, these jokes land so well is not just that they're witty or funny, but more than that, that they hit on everything that a good blurb is supposed to do. That's what, what makes the satire play and sing, is that it sounds like a lot of blurbs that you hear. Because a good blurb, all it does is it, it takes some time to praise the author's skill at their craft, even if they're praising their backhanded humor. A good blurb commends the qualities that you like about the writing. It encourages people to read what you're recommending. And a good book blurb gives an idea of, of what the book's about and what features someone who's approaching it should pay attention to. And in many ways, the final five verses of Ecclesiastes that you heard Micah read for us this morning are really nothing more than a blurb endorsing the book of Ecclesiastes. As you might have noticed, these verses transport us out of the perspective of Kohelet, uh, who is the kind of wise, skeptical guide who's been guiding us through this journey in Ecclesiastes. We're out of his perspective now and into the perspective of someone else. We don't know this person's name, but in all likelihood, the person who writes these last five verses is an editor who lived maybe several decades after Kohelet was walking around. And this editor has taken the time to compile Kohelet's words so he can share them with the audience of his day, with his generation. And these last five ver verses, he's endorsing the words of Kohelet as wise and important for the people of Israel at that time. We actually already heard from this author once very briefly at the very beginning of the book, verse one of the first chapter. He introduced Kohelet by saying this, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, and then he turns the reins over to Kohelet for 12 chapters that launch into exploring his primary thesis here in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That word vanity is one that if you've been with us, you've heard before. We've been looking at it almost every week throughout this series. Uh, and if you've been following along with us, you might know that it's the Hebrew word hevel, H-E-V-E-L, hevel. And several images uh, that are different but really interrelated can be invoked by the word hevel. You might think of a mirage, something that, that looks promising in real one moment but disappears the next. You might think of a breath, maybe the breath that you exhale on a cold day, visible for a second and then gone. You might think of a mist or a vapor that, that rises or is sprayed on a hot summer's day. You might think of smoke that rises from a, a fire or from a pipe. 
And that's why we've called this series Life Up in Smoke. Because Kohelet's central idea is that every single human endeavor is smoke. It's mist, it's a vapor, it's breath, it's a mirage, it's heaven. Now what do each of these images have in common? We could say it like this, they're all elusive. They're all elusive. You can't hang on to them. They can't be, be nailed down or controlled or, or bent to fit with your own will. Uh, when's the last time you tried collecting smoke or chasing after a mirage? They're elusive. And from the moment he was introduced by the editor in chapter one, Kohelet has been wrestling for 12 chapters with the difficulty of finding something meaningful and sure in life that he can hold on to. He searched out pleasure and work and money and justice and youth and more. And he finds that there's goodness in all of those things. Yet at the end of the day, his very last words in the book are exactly the same as the first. Look at chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Ultimately, he muses that all human activity is smoke. And in verse 9, right after this concluding statement, the author of the epilogue, the editor, is back. He's back on the scene, and like Handy says, it makes a disgusting mess. And he brings the book to a close with a blurb that, that does everything a good blurb does. It praises Kohelet's skill, it endorses his words as important to listen to, and it gives us an idea of what it's all about. So look with me at verse 9. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So these first words here make it clear that Kohelet was a highly respected, highly skilled, highly intelligent, brilliant, and influential public speaker in his day. In other words, when he spoke, People did well to listen. And by implication, we would do well to listen to his words as well. The editor also says that he sought to find words of delight or pleasing words. Now, that one comes as a bit of a surprise for anyone who's been reading Ecclesiastes, like words of delight. That's like saying The Shining is a feel-good movie, right? <laughs> his words often feel a lot more difficult and, and cynical than anything. They're definitely not words of delight. But I think the second half of the verse actually helps us understand a little bit more of what he means by this. That second half of the verse says, uprightly, he wrote words of truth. In other words, as hard as Kohelet's words can be to hear, they tell the truth about life. They're true to reality and human experience. Think of a moment when you've experienced a, a terrible tragedy do you want someone to, to tell you words that sound nice but ring hollow? Or do you want them to tell you words that are honest about what you're going through? And that's kind of what is meant here, that the second is actually more words of delight because they tell the truth about life. And because of this, they're able to strengthen us more than words that sound nice but ultimately are, are pretty empty. This becomes clearer as the editor goes on in verse 11. When he says this, he says, the words of the wise are like goads, 
And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. So our our endorser of Ecclesiastes says that the words of wisdom of Kohelet function kind of like goads. You know, goads, right? We all know what goads are here. No, not those. Those are goats with a T. We're talking about these, goads. You think of like a a cattle prod. Goads were used by, by shepherds to spur sheep in the right direction. So if you have a sheep trying to wander off, you'd use a goad to prod it back on the right track. So the idea of goads works like this. They hurt. They can be painful. But it's a heck of a lot better than running off on your own and getting eaten by a wolf. They put you in the right direction. And the author's saying that's how we should view Kohelet's words and all the words in the wisdom books. Because our shepherd God has inspired them to sharpen and to shape us, to prod us along in the right direction. So we would do well to listen to them. He also gives us a warning. Verse 12, my son, which is very wisdom literature, teacher-student relationship language, my son, beware of anything beyond these, meaning these words. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Here's what I think he's trying to say here. Our temptation when we hear hard words like those in Ecclesiastes is to go somewhere else where we can get something a little more palatable. Right? When we hear someone say something hard, our temptation kind of innately is to go find someone who will say something less hard to us. It's ingrained in us to, to look for, for loopholes, to look for ways around hard things. Or maybe we just look for something that justifies what we already believe or want to hear. I do this all the time when I'm watching basketball and I see the refs uh, make a call that I think is questionable. Immediately I go to Twitter and I find a bunch of other people who also think that call was questionable so I feel better about myself and I'm right about my opinion. I just go and seek someone who wants to say what I already think. Find the loophole. And our editor is encouraging his readers not to waste so much time studying other books looking for ways around what Kohelet is saying. He's like, look, it's all here. He's heard and experienced it all. And you can look high and low for another answer, another perspective, but you'll just be worn out in the end with the same outcome. Can't look for loopholes. Now everything in verses 9 through 12 that we just really briefly unpacked has been making this really simple case. Kohelet's words are worth listening to. We should take heed to what he's been saying in this book, even if it's hard. And now, like a professor who just turned off or paused a TED Talk, he turns to the class to tell us what it's all been about. And everyone in this room is like, finally, someone's going to tell me what this book's about? Why do we have to wait 12 chapters to get to what it's all about, right? He's going to tell us. Look ahead, look uh, with me. Let's go ahead and look at what he says in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, of human beings. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every hidden thing, whether good or evil. There it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what we're meant to do in response to Ecclesiastes. That's what it's all been about. Simple enough, right? Yes and no. Of course, there's a lot more nuance to that sentence. And in order to understand what it really means, we have to go back and see how Kohelet has really been trying to point us in this direction the whole time, even when it's been hard to see. 
He's been trying to point us in this direction. One place we see it is Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, It might be a a section that you've heard before uh, because it begins like this. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Kohelet will go on in chapter 3 to list a bunch of different seasons that happen in life. The different things that we encounter, the different things that there's a time for. He goes through good things and bad things, easy things and hard things. But he lists every different season that there is a time for in life. Now, the same thing is true for seasons as was true for everything that we looked at a few minutes ago. You can't control the seasons. You can't control or make the seasons fit your will, which makes living in the Midwest really hard because you might have all four in one day. But you can't change it. You can't bend it to your will. All you can do is adjust to the season you're in. And the same thing that's true for seasons of weather is true for seasons of life. We can't pick or control the season that we're in. We just have to learn how to adjust. Then here's what he says in verse 10 of chapter 3. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time, every season. Also, has he put eternity into a man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We can say it this way. Seasons aren't determined by human beings. They're determined by God. And all of it, he says, both the good and the bad, all of it fits somehow into a larger plan and purpose that is true and good and beautiful in time. But here's the thing. And you might have felt this as I just said that. That's great, but we don't always understand how or why we're in a particular season that we're in. Sometimes the things God allows to happen are mysterious to us. They don't make sense to us. Kohelet says that God has put eternity in our hearts, which just means that he's put an, an, an intrinsic desire to be satisfied by him and to see how everything fits together and works out. He's put that in our heart, and yet, the end of that, verse 11 says, so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So we can't understand it. He says something very similar in chapter 8 and several other sections that we don't have time to get into. But in chapter 8, verse 17, he says, I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know. The smartest of the smartest, people who get life the most, will not figure it out. And all of these passages are meant to get at this idea. The ways of God don't always make sense to us. They can be confusing. There are things that that happen in life that we can't control, that we can't comprehend. They're simply mysterious. And try as we might, and you'd better believe, Kohelet tried as hard as he could. We won't be able to fully understand everything that happens under the sun. I think if we were going to say that there's a core question to the book of Ecclesiastes, we could summarize it like this. What do we do with the mystery of life? What do we do with the mystery of life? Kohelet spent 12 chapters butting heads, coming face to face, naming the stuff in life that's mysterious. He's been wrestling with this, the idea that the good and the bad days are made by God. That's a mystery. 
The idea that sometimes people who do evil get away with it, whereas people who live lives of integrity sometimes suffer unfairly. As we would say, sometimes bad things happen to good people. He's been looking at the idea that there are things that are good to enjoy that at the same time are detrimental to place our hope in. All of this stuff is mysterious. What do we do with that mystery? Well, according to Ecclesiastes, there's a response that God intended us to have when we come face to face with the mystery of our lives. And it's the same exact response that our editor encourages in chapter 12. First time we see it is chapter three, verse 14, right after the seasons passage. He says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. We can't change God's will. God has done it, why? So that people fear before him. Again, in chapter eight, verse 12, he says something similar. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who do what? Fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And then once more, our editor's encouragement in chapter 12. The end of the matter All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. What do we do with the mystery of life? Fear God. Now you might be like, wait a minute. I thought as Christians we were supposed to be done with this whole fear thing. Like, uh, isn't fear something that we're not supposed to be afraid of anymore? Doesn't perfect love cast out fear? Doesn't Paul say that we're supposed to have a spirit that's not fear, but a spirit of power? Uh, Doesn't the phrase, do not fear, come up 365 times in the Bible? And yes, you're right. It does. And yet this phrase, fear God, or fear the Lord, appears all over the place in Scripture as well. What do we do with that? In order to make sense of it, we have to understand that there were two different Hebrew words that were used to convey the idea of fear. And they're used to refer, every single time they're used, they're used to refer to two totally different kinds of fear. We actually get an example of both in use in the first chapter of the book of Proverbs, which is the quintessential wisdom book in the wisdom literature in the Bible. First one we see in in chapter one, verse 33 of Proverbs. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. And you see up there, I put where dread is in parentheses, that's the Hebrew word pachad. And pachad always refers to this kind of fear that is like dread or terror or or absolute trembling because you're afraid something horrible is going to happen to you. It's that, that fear that you get when you're watching a scary movie or show. It's what we typically think of when we think of fear is that kind of dread. That's the Hebrew word pachad, and it's always used that way. But also in Proverbs 1, verse 7, we get this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and destruction. Now the word fear that's used here in this verse for the fear of the Lord is the Hebrew word yare. And that word, every single time it's used, refers to a kind of fear that's quite unlike terror or dread. It's more like an intense reverence or awe. Like an overwhelming sense of awe and joy and wonder and reverence for something. 
that's, that's great or majestic. Here's how author Michael Reeves describes it in his book, Rejoice and Tremble. He says, the living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy, his all. The nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. That's pachad. He is no tyrant. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. That's the Yare kind of fear. That's the fear of the Lord, this intense reverence and awe overwhelmed by beauty and goodness. And that's kind of helpful, right? But, but what does awe mean, and why do we translate it as fear? Why don't we translate it with another word, like, I don't know, awe or reverence? Like, why do we use the word fear? And I wonder if it's kind of like how psychologists will tell us that our body can't really distinguish between the feelings of being nervous and being excited. Now, it's different to be nervous than being excited. Those are very different things, but they feel kind of similar. It's hard to tell, am I, am I nervous, am I anxious, am I just excited? But they're very different things. And I wonder if there's something here with the difference between like overwhelming awe and reverence and, and terror or dread, that there are some similar feelings, but they're totally different and what they actually are. I think the best author at drawing this out is uh, the author C.S. Lewis, uh, especially in his descriptions of Aslan, his character in the Chronicles of Narnia, where he talks about Aslan's terrible beauty, terrible beauty. In particular, uh, the best book for this is the book The Horse and His Boy, and we get passages like this there. I think this is so helpful. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. No one ever saw anything more terrible and beautiful. Trembling and gladness, terrible and beautiful. This next one I think is even more helpful. Then when, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. See, here's the idea. Fearing God, it's not just standing there shaking like you're paralyzed by a scary monster from Stranger Things or something like that. Like, we don't fear him as if he's someone who's out to get us. That's not the kind of fear. No, to fear God is just to say, how can I not trust this one? How can I not trust this one? It's being so overwhelmed with who he is that you walk in his ways, even when it doesn't make sense, even when the way forward isn't clear, even when stuff is mysterious. That's why it's called the beginning of wisdom. So here's the idea I want to leave us with this morning. Fearing God frees us from fear. I'll say that again. Freeing, fearing God frees us from fear. The reality is there are plenty of things to be terrified of in life. There might be things that are popping up in your heart right now that you are sincerely scared of. The mystery of life can cause us to be afraid when we don't know what's next. And honestly, if we aren't with God, 
we have good reason to fear those things because it's scary. It's unknown. As Dumbledore told Harry Potter in the cave in the book The Half-Blood Prince, it is the unknown we fear when we look on death and darkness, nothing more. It's the unknown we fear when we look on death and darkness, as Ecclesiastes' author has done so much. And on the way out of the cave, after Dumbledore has experienced the most intense moments of agony and fear and pain and weakness, he's at his lowest. He will turn to Harry and he will say, of course I'm not worried because I'm with you. I'm not afraid because I am with you. That's what it looks like, friends, to fear the Lord. It's to say there is plenty to fear, but I don't have to dread any of it because I'm with you. Because even when I'm not in control of the seasons you are, because even when I don't understand, I choose to rely on you. It's to say you are worthy of me. You can have me and I will follow. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and at ease without dread of disaster. That's the fear of the Lord. And it frees us from fear of all else. But it doesn't only free us from something. The fear of the Lord also frees us for something, to do something. So I just want to close us with a couple suggestions of things that the fear of God frees us to do. And maybe you could just consider these as possible responses as we close this series, like how should I respond to the book of Ecclesiastes as a whole? Consider these some some options of ways to respond. Here's the first. Fearing God frees us to lean in to the mystery. It frees us to lean in to the mystery. In other words, when we have a relational trust with God like this, the mystery of life doesn't have to overwhelm us. We don't have to avoid parts of our life, even the parts of our faith that don't make sense. We don't have to avoid the stuff that doesn't make sense. No, when we fear God, we're free to lean into the mystery instead of running away from it, which some of us try to do, or trying to find a fix-all answer like others of us like to do. Some of you might be sitting here and being like, okay, why did we have to sit through all of Ecclesiastes again to get to this idea? And that's part of why, is that we're meant to experience this stuff with Kohelet. As Westerners, we just want answers. We want to know what's the answer and how can I do it? And the author of Ecclesiastes is like, no, Life is far more nuanced and layered than that. We have to experience it with him. And that's Kohelet's secret in writing this book, I think. The reason he's able to write with skepticism and emotion and rawness about the things that deeply trouble him, the reason he's able to question his faith without losing his faith, the reason he's able to doubt without leaving God and abandoning him altogether is because he fears God. And when we fear God, We can ask those questions. We can have those doubts without completely obliterating our faith or leaving God. What mystery might God be inviting you to lean into as we close this book? What mystery have you been stuffing or avoiding or not addressing that God wants you to lean into and explore with him? What mystery might you need to lean into? Fearing God frees us to lean into those mysteries. Here's a second. Fearing God also frees us to obey his clear commands. Even though there's a lot that is mysterious, there are some things in life that are very straightforward. There are some things that God has given us very clear commands and a clear path to follow. 
And our choice for those things becomes the same choice that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. Do we trust that God's definition of good and evil is better than mine? In these matters where it's really straightforward, it's about deciding that God's commands are good and then doing them. Hearing God frees us to live this life of obedience. So maybe let me ask you, where might God be calling you to obey him more faithfully as we close this book? Is there an area of life where you know I'm not obeying God's clear commands, that he's inviting you to do that as we close? Fearing God frees us to obey the clear commands. Here's the third. Fearing God frees us to stop chasing the smoke. It frees us to stop chasing the smoke. Throughout the book, we've been confronted with so many things that are good, but that can't fully satisfy us. The things that we can enjoy, but that we shouldn't worship because they're unreliable. He says they're smoke, whether it's wealth or youth or money or sex or pleasure or work. But our survey of all of these gifts, why Kohelet goes into depths on all of these, is that all of these gifts are meant to point us to the giver. They're meant to point us to him as the one who can fulfill our deepest longings, as the one who can truly satisfy us and bring all of those other things into their proper place. When we live with reverence and awe for our creator, our restless hearts can come to rest in him. And we can say, I would rather be eaten by you than fed by all of these other things that are smoke. What areas of your life might God be inviting you to stop chasing smoke as we close this book? Two more. Fearing God frees us to come out of hiding. Fearing God frees us to come out of hiding. The writer of our little blurb that we've looked at this morning makes it clear that one reason for fearing God and keeping his commandments is this, that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. In other words, whether we like it or not, eventually God will find every one of us And we will stand before him and he will see every hidden thing in our lives. And that is scary, if I'm honest. But friends, when we fear God, we don't have to live in terror of judgment. When we fear God, we don't have to live in terror of judgment because we are set free to come out of hiding, to be vulnerable, to share the the sin, the ways that we've clearly disobeyed him and expose them. And in those places, we are met with a father who won't walk out of the room on us. Where might God be inviting you to come out of hiding as we close this book? To come out of hiding. Let me give you one more. Fearing God frees us to enjoy the present. Frees us to enjoy the present. In other words, it frees us from being afraid of the future that we don't know and we don't understand. This is actually perhaps Kohelet's most consistent encouragement throughout the 12 chapters. At least five different times in this book, he says something along the lines of this. Enjoy the present. Rejoice in the good things God has given you. There is nothing better than to do that. When we fear God, when we trust that he has control of our future even when it's mysterious to us, we are free to enjoy the good gifts that he has given us 
now. So finally, what good gifts might God be inviting you to enjoy more deeply as we close this book? What good gifts might God be inviting you to enjoy more deeply as we close this book? Freeing God frees us from fear of all else. It frees us to lean into the mystery, to keep his clear commands, to stop chasing the smoke, to come out of hiding, to enjoy the present. And ultimately, it frees us from fear because Jesus Christ is our anti-hevel. He's our anti-hevel. He is the opposite of smoke. He's someone who came and he experienced human life under the sun. He saw and experienced how hard and confusing and painful it can be. He He obeyed the commands of God perfectly and he also leaned into the mystery in moments like the Garden of Gethsemane where he's crying out and wondering. In other words, he lived a life that feared God and kept his commands. And on the day of judgment, friends, when we stand before our Father and all is exposed, we won't have to be afraid because he will be with us. Arm around us, reminding the Father that all he did was for us and on our behalf. If you take one thing from Ecclesiastes, It's that Christ is no mirage. He's no wisp of smoke. He is real. He is tangible. He is stable. He is secure. He is in control. And he is good. And he can fulfill us even where no one else can. Will you fear him? Let's pray.